I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hi everyone, this is Kristen Sinanda Walker and I am with a great um, guest that was referred to us by Christine Monahan, who does our Stress is Optional podcast. Um, her name is Claire Bidwell-Smith and we're going to talk about grief today. She's written several books. She's obviously, she's an author and she's also a therapist that specializes in, in grief Claire, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I was just telling you before I started the recording, I've been doing a lot of shows about this lately, so I'm a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's important to remember that we can grieve for all sorts of things, not just people that we lose. So that's true. Good hopefully point. that's thank not you. something that's headed your way. Maybe it's just a transition period in your life. Right, exactly, exactly. So tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Uh, well, like you said, I'm a therapist specializing in grief. I've been in private practice for almost 10 years. I started out in hospice. Um, I have a master's in clinical psychology. I have written three books about grief and loss. Um, the first one is a memoir called The Rules of Inheritance, and it's about my own personal journey that got me into this work, which was losing both of my parents to cancer by the time I was 25. They both got sick when I was a teenager at the same time, and I'm an only child. So their deaths um, and those losses really shaped much of who I am and then the path that I ended up on. Um, I was a writer before I was grieving. <laughs> I was a writer <laughs> since I was a young kid. So it became my way of really processing my experiences. And I've just threaded the two together and... Um, I'm now 40 and have been just in this field of death and dying and writing about it for, you know, pretty much all of my adult life. Mm -hmm. I love this work. I think it's really beautiful. I think that grief is a reflection of our relationships and our lives and love and that um, it's inescapable. We will all go through it. So right. talking about it and making the conversation bigger, making more space for it is what will ultimately be healing for, for people as they go through it themselves. And I know like I just did in the beginning and I know there's grief for many things. Um, I can, I'm so glad that you 
that you brought it up anyway, um, that you can grieve for many things because there is there is some stuff going on that I'm grieving about. So mm -hmm. but you reminding me helped. And I think that's what people need um, need to be reminded of. It's it's not always about the loss of of someone you love in terms of them passing away. It could be just a loss of a relationship, you know, any, any number of things that Absolutely. you do have to go through a grieving process over. Yeah, big life transitions for sure. There's so many different kinds. And I think that we often need to give ourselves better permission to grieve. You know, we, we deny it for some reason. That's our impulse is to deny ourselves the grief process, but um, we need to give ourselves permission Absolutely. So, you know, you were so young and you were an only child. I was an only child as well. Who um, who did you go to as that those parental figures losing your parents that young? I didn't <laughs> really. Mm. I just didn't really have anyone to turn to when I by the time my father died, I was 25 and everyone around me just kind of expected me to grown up by that point right. which I was not and um, <laughs> right I'm still not a grown-up and I'm 48 so. <laughs> yeah I hear you I feel similarly um so I didn't I, I traveled a lot I got into unhealthy relationships I drank too much at times I really you know had I struggled there for a period of years to kind of find my um grounding I just was so ungrounded all my peers and for Beginning when I was in high school, my peers were all just living a very different experience of life. Um, I was really facing mortality in a way that no one around me was, which was in some ways really amazing. Um, it afforded me a lot of adventure and recklessness in some ways that were really exciting because I lived like there was no tomorrow mm -hmm. uh, because that kept being proven to me. <laughs> and so in some ways it was really exciting while everyone around me was, you know, living out step by step the things they were supposed to do at that age. I was dropping everything on a whim to travel places or fall in love or, you know, do various exciting things that were a little out of the box. And that was great for a, a while until it wasn't. And <laughs> um, and then I had to reckon with myself. And, and Were you and, already at that time thinking, you know, this is a field I want to go into or was that not even part of your consciousness? It wasn't. Um, I was writing all the time. I wrote all through it. I was definitely writing versions of my what became my first book. So that was more of it. And then when I hit a kind of rock bottom period in my 20s, my late 20s, I ended up serendipitously working in a field of service and working with underprivileged school kids and suddenly contributing to the world in this really meaningful way was the thing that very much snapped me out of um, this kind of place of recklessness and self-indulgence that I had been in, in my pain, you know? Um, and it was from there that I kind of, I went from working with kids to working with the homeless to deciding to go get my master's and do something more productive with my life. And then once I had my master's, I knew immediately that the only field I wanted to work in was death and dying. Mm. There were so many other students in my grad program who, that was the that was the least field, the, the, that was the field they did not want to go into. Right. <laughs> Everybody wanted to work in all kinds of anything but death and dying. And so I was like, right. well, if I'm already so willing to do this and comfortable with it, I may as well, since there's not enough of us obviously going around to do it. 
Right, exactly. I was just going to say, well, okay, you can fill a need immediately because, mm -hmm. yeah, I used to do that with therapy dog work. Nobody wanted to work with the psych patients. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, I will. <laughs> yeah, and that's important. And there, there are fields that I myself don't want to work in, so I'm glad that there are yes. people who do those, and I'm going to do mine. Right, exactly. I would never make it as an accountant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in making that decision, what was your first uh, foray into working in hospice? Was it triggering for you? Were there things that you had to unpack when you got home? Because I know some of the things that I learned um, doing, you know, the work that I did in psych hospitals was don't you dare get up there and start crying. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you if, if everybody is having a tear, that's fine, but you cannot, you know, you have to leave. So if you're having your own issue, you have to learn how to pack that somewhere and then go to your car later. And, you know, right. so how, how was it for you? I definitely had to go to my car later on occasion in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. um, I was living in Chicago at the time and I was about 30 years old when I started working as a bereavement counselor. Um, and I would drive around to people's homes during the day in the suburbs of Chicago. And I would work both with patients who were actively dying and with the family members who were caring for them. And then I also worked with them after the patient had died. And it definitely triggered a lot. It brought up a lot. Um, you know, I knew grief before that. But when I, I knew my own personal grief and what my experience had been, but to really step into the lives of so many other people who were grieving, it was just so illuminating. Um, there were days that I, I, I felt a lot of grief and pain and I would go home and cry. But then most of the days it was just, um, it was really quite beautiful. I, I became pregnant with my first daughter at that same time. Mm. Um, and I really was struck by the differences and similarities of birth and death. I was driving around with this big pregnant belly and I was <laughs> having all these baby showers thrown for me and I was I had I had a, a doula and I had midwives and I was going to do this big natural intentional birth and bring this person into the world. And at the same time I was sitting down with all these these patients and families who were preparing to exit. Um, and there was such a marked difference between how we embrace the end of life. Um, and there's a lot more fear, there's a lot more it's just shrouded. It was very quiet. There weren't a lot of people around. It was very kind of secretive, almost scary at times. And that made me sad, you know, because there's there can be a real beauty in death and in mm -hmm. the ways that we exit the world. And I loved hospice for that reason, because it really enabled the best deaths possible. You know, right. we, the whole team came together to work to help families and patients really have the most present, comfortable death possible. Um, and there was so much beauty in that and so much meaning, yet it was being so hidden away, you know, it was so tucked away from, from the rest of the world. And that made me sad. And that's still something that I strive to work on today with, I have a lot of colleagues and doctors and other hospice people I kind of talk to and work on projects with. And it's all about kind of helping people have better deaths. Yeah, I know that I've, um, you know, I've spoken to so many people at this point with the with the show, but something that I hear from some um, psychologists and, and so on are how sorry they feel for someone who's alone in hospice, uh, that no one's there to visit them or take them through 
um, you know, their last stages of life. And I can see where they're, I can absolutely see, you know, where they're coming from. And a lot of these people I, I was visiting too, because I was there, you know, with my therapy dog. And I remember one um, patient who was, he was in his late nineties and he didn't have anyone really coming to visit because his children had passed before him. His wife had passed before him. There just really weren't, wasn't anyone really left. And um, when he did pass, it wasn't, no one there felt sorry for him. I mean, he was surrounded in love by the people that, that worked there. Mm -hmm. That became his family. He used to call my dog every dog that he had ever had. He called him that name. He spent his entire days watching Animal Planet. And, um, but I, I, I just got a, I had some sort of, I don't know if it was epiphany, whatever it was, but I thought, you know, I'm not going to feel sorry for someone if they're alone in this, because you really are alone in it, in it anyway. Right. Um, so I, that me, that's me putting my projection of something onto someone else's experience. And that's not necessarily true or fair, but what do you think about that? Yeah, I do think that we are ultimately all alone in it. Um, but I think there's different ways to approach it in, in terms of how we embrace it. And it sounds like he was present to the experience and he knew what mm-hmm. was going to happen. And yeah, um, my the differences between my parents' deaths, I feel, really contributed to me wanting to work in this field. My mother had been very much in denial about her her cancer and how sick she was and what was going to happen. Um, and because she was in denial about it, I was too. Um, we didn't talk about it. We didn't say goodbye. We didn't talk about what it would be like if she died. She didn't put anything in place. And she also kind of had a really anxious, fearful, up until the end medical treatments, like, you know, died in the hospital. I wasn't there because it wasn't expected necessarily. And that was all very traumatic. You know, when she was gone, I I felt just stricken with guilt and sadness and I I hadn't seen it coming. And if I had known that she was going to die, I, there were so many things I wished I could have done differently. Um, and, and that was very painful and took me, you know, there are still aspects of my mother's death that, that make me sad. My father, on the other hand, really went into his death. He was, he was older than my mom and he had lived a longer life and really been very present to so much um, of his life experiences. And he chose to end his treatments when his cancer, you know, got too bad and he wanted to go home and be with hospice. And he asked me to help him with that endeavor. Um, And so that experience was completely different from my mother's. Mm -hmm. Um, We were at home. I was there with him in the last weeks and days. I held his hand while he was dying. We had had the conversations we needed to have. He'd put everything in place for after he died. Uh, And so when he was gone, I didn't feel that same kind of pain and guilt and regret and just, I wasn't so eaten up with it. I was very sad to not have my father anymore, but his death was really quite beautiful and it was what he wanted and he closed out his life very intentionally. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that there are different ways to do this, you know? Yeah, there are most definitely different ways to do it. Absolutely. And you've seen so many different ways now and heard Mm -hmm. so many different ways now. I would imagine a lot of what there's not only the help and the counseling and the support for the person who is going to die, but then so many things come up for family members, guilt or 
Guilt is a really big one. And often it comes from the same thing that I went through with my mom, this um, inability that we have as a culture to really address death, talk about it, you know, say goodbyes, face it. And so we don't. And then and then the death happens and we're left with so much we wished we had done differently or said differently or just said it all. And and so so much of the work I do as a grief therapist is helping clients move through that process of making amends with themselves, making amends with their loved ones who are no longer here, um, working through that guilt. It's big stuff. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is big stuff. And the making amends part, talk to me about that process, because that is such a touchy or it can be a very touchy subject for people. Yeah, well, I think I think people feel that when they lose somebody that the door is closed and it's over. There's no more um, chance for reconciliation or to make amends about something. And I, I don't think that that's true. I think mm-hmm. that we can make amends. I think that we can work through things even after a person is gone. Um, and I think we have to. I think that we carry around internalized versions of the people we love. I think we our relationships with them continue. Um, I think this guilt that people feel, it's because they're still having conversations in their head, you know, with, mm-hmm. the, with the people they miss. So they may as well really make amends and talk through it. And so I often work with clients on writing letters to loved ones that they've lost, helping them work through that. So in terms of um, making amends, you were talking about that you work with people that um, feel like because someone has passed, they missed their chance to make that last amend. And, you know, and you're also dealing with people that have different religious beliefs. Uh, Maybe they aren't spiritual at all or religious at all or whatever, you know, they're coming from so many different backgrounds. So that must be extraordinary for you to figure out how to language this in a way that's going to really um, help them make those amends based on what their belief systems are. Yeah, it's it's definitely never boring. It's always really interesting work. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. I think, you know, 30, 40 years ago in in the clinical world of grief, there was a big emphasis on helping people let go of their loved ones and move on. So if you lost a husband or a child or a parent or a sibling, you you know, the emphasis was really about like, how do you, how do you let go of that person and really move on? You know, maybe get remarried, have another kid, clean out the closets, like let's really move on. And it's really shifted in the last 20 years to more of an emphasis on helping people stay connected, really even the last 10 years. Um, some, some, there's still some old school clinicians that are working on this letting go piece that, that really I don't think works well. Um, I think that 
we do need to move forward in our lives and and live our learn how to live our lives without the people that we that we lost but i think that we also need to strive to stay connected to them on an emotional level on an internal level in a spiritual way whatever that looks like for someone there's been plenty of studies that show that people who have firm religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs about the afterlife or um, just in general about the way life works have a much healthier grief process. They have a framework with which to understand it. Right. Um, it's those of us who flounder a bit, and I was one of those for a long time, who don't have a framework to, to comprehend loss and death and afterlife and grief. And um, So I encourage a lot of my clients to look into that side of their their being, no matter what it is, no matter what they turn to, often we haven't really asked ourselves what we think happens when we die until we're right. faced with death. Right. Um, we may think we have an idea about it, and we may have been raised in a certain way, or we may have gone along all these years um, with a certain religion or spirituality, and then then we get actually hit with a, with a big loss, and it throws everything into question. But I think that that's an important part of the process. I think we do need to look at, look into that side and find ways to understand what what our relationships and connections are on um, an unseen level, and how do we keep up those connections and relationships? That's so great that you say that because this ties into um, a friend of mine that's going through a rough time with a friend of hers. <laughs> Mm -hmm. who is just like, let's clean out all the closets. I mean, it's, it's, it's only been a month um, mm -hmm. and let's clean out the closets, get rid of the furniture. Let's just, you know, all, move, move, moving on into a new marriage and, you know, the, like can't talk about um, the spouse that has passed and she's trying to help her. You know, this is not, this isn't, this is you running from dealing with your your feelings without um, trying to force her to go through something that she's not ready to go through. But mm -hmm. it's been really painful for her to watch this happen. And this just sort of let's OK, you know, get everything off to goodwill, clean out the closets. Uh, you know, he's gone and uh, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And so. When you're dealing, I'm not putting that down or judging that way, that everyone has their way of dealing with something. But when you've been confronted with things like that, because you're right, that that was sort of the way it was. You're just supposed to move on and forget about them. And the way that you're talking about it with keeping that memory and it so, seems so much more natural and healthy to do that than this, you know, this other way of where you're just supposed to move on and not even grieve. Right. It is. And often, you know, the people who do try to push it away and move on quickly, there's something there that they need to work through, right? There's a guilt right. piece or there's, there's just something that's unresolved that it's too painful for them to consider even trying to stay connected or hold on to that relationship on a different plane um, before they've done some kind of work. So I would imagine that there's something unresolved there for her right. um, and working through that first will then help her make the choice to be able to grieve to be able to try to stay connected um, but it's you know grief is so painful it's so much bigger than people think it will be oh, uh, it's one of the biggest things we'll go through emotionally in our lifetimes and I think most people are very unprepared for it and 
um, I mean, it just, it can really knock you to your knees and it can, that can happen for up to a year where you're just really quite debilitated. And it's just so unexpected for most people. And, and because nobody really talks about it and it's kind of shrouded, there's not a lot of role models for it. Right. I've been loving seeing Joe Biden the last few years, um, cry so openly about his son his and talk son, so openly yes. about grief, um, especially for a man to be doing that has been really, really exciting to see. Um, from the grief perspective, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but it's just made me happy <laughs> to see somebody so out in the open grieving so publicly because we really need to see more of it so that people feel allowed to do that and feel like uh, most people feel so alone and like they're going crazy when they're grieving. And so they just try to tuck it away and pretend like it's not happening. And that is not the answer. I know I have this wonderful, wonderful friend and um, her one of her children passed, her adult children passed, and she's someone who worked in hospice as a nurse, and she, you know, was able to really help people shepherd their way um, out of, you know, this experience and on to the next. And the hardest part for her in going through the grieving has been, I, I can't see him. Why is it that I can mm -hmm. feel other people's family members' presence or um, you know, that I can, I can feel that for other people, but I can't feel my son anymore. I don't know how to, I don't know how to find him. And that's been, you know, really, really, really difficult. And we started sort of studying that in different religions in different parts of the world. And that's a little bit of a common thing. If you're someone who has that ability to see things, you have a little bit of psychic ability to see things um, for other people it's um, and often it escapes you with those nearest and dearest to you mm -hmm. no that's definitely true it's you know we want so badly um, to be connected with them and to hold on so tightly mm -hmm. and I think some of that actually prevents us from from doing so which is ironic but true I think yeah. if we can kind of let go and ease into it then it then it comes more naturally um, and that takes some time, you know, if, if this loss was recent, then it takes a little time for that to, for you to be able to let go a little bit and not hold on so tightly. Right. And then feel, feel that connection again, because that connection is there no matter what, but, yes. you know, I think from what I've seen in my own personal experience with it, which is certainly not yours, of course, <laughs> Yours is much more vast than mine, but um, I've seen a lot of anger, which is a stage. It can mm -hmm. be a stage. Really angry that uh, at the person who's gone that they left you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anger is big. It often, anger is a powerful emotion. I think um, there's always something underneath it. There's always pain underneath it, right? Mm -hmm. um, anger is really can be so useful because it's so powerful. Um, pain and sadness and depression are really kind of, exhausting emotions and their vulnerable emotions. And if we can turn to anger instead, we can, you know, feel that swelling of power and motivation and, and, and often kind of separate ourselves from the pain. So, so many people turn to that um, at some point or another in the grief process and they get angry at the person who's gone or they get angry at themselves or they get angry at hospital staff or they get angry at family yes. members. Um, I see so much of it, but when you really peel back the layers, usually there's just some underlying sadness there that they're so un afraid to 
tap into. Right. Most people are afraid if they open the door to that sadness that they're never going to be able to close it again. Yeah. yeah. And that's not that's true. Right. You know, no one's going to cry forever. It's right. possible. <laughs> but it can really feel like you will. You know, there can be this feeling of like, if you open that door, you're just going to fall into this chasm of, of just weeping and, and, and never coming out of it. Um, but really, that's kind of what we need to do. We need to lean into that place. And there, from there, the anger really softens. And I think that there's so much opportunity in grief for transformation. I think that grief really asks something of us. It asks us to peel back all our layers. It asks us to be vulnerable in a way we never have been before. It asks us to reevaluate our relationships and the way we move through the world and the choices we make. And I think there's some real incredible opportunities within grieving to just transform ourselves. Um, it's rare that I see someone come up, come out on the other side, the same person, you know, Absolutely. it doesn't really happen. Yeah. If you decide to dive through it and, you know, we are so hard on ourselves. I mean, we just, Oh my gosh, so hard. <laughs> it's like if, you know, if your loved one uh, passed away a few months ago and you are, you know, burst into tears at a supermarket, it's like, I shouldn't be doing this. Why, mm -hmm. why is this still happening? And it's like, no, this only happened a few months ago. You might, you might be bursting into tears in a supermarket for a year. Yeah, absolutely. I know the impulse is just immediately to berate ourselves for mm -hmm. feeling sad or showing emotion or being vulnerable. And, and that's really, um, that's really not the right way, you know, and so, so much of the work I do is just helping clients feel compassionate towards themselves and, yes. um, and understanding and letting themselves break down. Um, it's, do you think, it's hard. Do you think that, because, um, you know, there's so much about what self-compassion is and people just try to find it and, you know, go on these windy roads to find it and, and misfire in that in so many ways. And to me, the grieving process, if you really uh, allow yourself to go through it and get help like from someone like you to go through it, it can be the greatest um, way to actually discover how to be compassionate for yourself. Oh, completely. And this is the kind of transformation I'm talking about. You know, um, people, when they really allow themselves to lean into the grief and you don't have to do it alone. When I talk about leaning into it, it's like you said, like finding someone like me to do the work with or finding a support group or reading books, you know, just finding some support through that process um, and really leaning into it and letting the grief break you open and exploring what it's asking of you to change and to open up to, um, asking you to find that that level of self-compassion, it's it, it can be incredibly transformative. Like you can really come out of it a whole new person and, and better. Absolutely. How about in families where, um, let's say, uh, it's, uh, you know, a father or a mother that has passed and that you have the spouse that's still living and their grief obviously is enormous. But then, you know, the grief of the children, the friends, the so on, or even, you know, just the immediate family is there too. And I've had people say, well, I just went right into, you know, helping take care of my mom after dad died. And I just never grieved myself because her grief was so big and I just got busy, um, you know, 
taking care of her that I didn't even stop and think about grieving for myself. What are some signs that, cause that's almost human nature to do that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So what are some signs that you would, you could say or tell our listeners that to look out for, to make sure that you're not doing that, that you're, because it's, it's, yes, it's the person who's having this massive grief, but the responsibility still lies with you to allow yourself to grieve as well. Yeah, I encounter this scenario a lot. Um, and you're very right in that, in that often adult children will, will sacrifice their own grief for those around them, take care of their parents or the remaining parent. Um, and I think usually what I see in the the reason they come to me, I'll get the adult children that will come to me, but it's usually because they've had some kind of breakdown um, or they're experiencing anxiety or anger attacks. Um, and that's because they're suppressing the grief, their own grief, because they're taking care of someone else's. And so I think, you know, being on the lookout for that anxiety and anger um, or just, you know, a, a, a quieter depression. And it's, you can do both. You can honor your own grief process and you can also really be there for other family members. Um, and sometimes you can't do them together in the same room, you know, like you say, right. you need to go and have, if you're the adult child, um, you need to go and have a, a grief support group that you're part of where it's other, other people who've lost a parent as well, or you need to go and find a therapist to work with one-on-one. -on -one. And then you do that on your own time. Maybe you don't even talk to your parent about it, your surviving parent. Um, and it's just something you do on your own. Um, and then you go and you also do your caretaking for your adult parent, but you will have such a better, um, much more space to be able to do that if you're honoring your own grief process. Right, exactly. I, I come from a family of plowers, like we just mm -hmm. plow through everything. <laughs> <laughs> which is not really healthy um, <laughs> but yeah we'll we we have tended to just uh you know just i don't know so my my stepfather who who passed a few years ago um that was obviously very 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 difficult i, I he actually adopted me as an adult and i took his last name and i was there holding I wasn't, was I holding his hand? I was there touching him when he, when he passed. And of course that was just, you know, a, um, a very traumatic moment, the time up before he passed and so on. But I did that plow thing. Okay. Just gotta be there for my mom. She's having tremendous grief. Um, I didn't even, I made her, I made her go to therapy and mm -hmm. I, it didn't even occur to me. And I'm in this field that I should probably go to therapy too. I did it later and, but it, it compounded the problem that I didn't, I wasn't going at the same time. Yeah. What I also see is I see a lot of um, the surviving spouse, the older spouse really kind of ignore the, the, the adult child's grief process. Mm -hmm. um, they, they assume that because you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s and you've got a family and a business and you're, you know, really, um, you've got a lot going on in your life and that the grief isn't as big for you as it is for them. And that's where I see a lot of frustration on the behalf of my clients who are grieving a parent. They feel like their other parent doesn't value their grief process or see it as well. Um, it's, yeah. It's interesting. There was, yeah, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, I could really feel him and talk to him. And I had a lot of dreams about him. And I don't know if any of that 
was just my imagination, what I wanted, if it was real, you know, who knows, I won't know until I die (laughs) what, what that stuff was about, but I really felt him and oh my gosh I I knew right away don't talk about that because my mother became enraged jealous Mm -hmm. Um, just I was like okay that's not I just won't even bring this up Mm -hmm. I still feel him often that's beautiful but um, but yeah those those things are hard to navigate because you're it doesn't matter how together you are how much therapy you've had whatever grief hits you and it's like I've told people um, my experience with it was like I already struggled with depression so then we add grief a very significant grief on top of it and now I'm going through my days and I'm walking around in concrete for shoes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I see just family, family dynamics change a lot when you lose a family member. I often liken it to like a table leg that um, needs to be like a table leg has been removed from, Mm. from the table and everyone, all the other legs have to shift around in order to keep the table standing. And it, and, and it's uncomfortable, you know, it's, it's different from everybody. Right. Exactly. So, So how about, when you see families that they're just so shocked and so upset and then there's fighting about money and the will and all that and you can see past all of the you know all of those things what's underneath it um how have you seen ways to get past all of that stuff and get to the root of okay, this is, this is what this really is about. And we can move through this peacefully. Yeah. Again, it's often that, that there's, there's some unresolved stuff there, either between family members themselves or between the the person who is gone. And, um, I, what I see a lot is people feeling like the other family members aren't recognizing each other's grief Mm. and their own ways of going about it. Everyone grieves so differently. You know, people want there to be some formula or some exact way to grieve, but it's just completely different for everyone. So you can have two sisters in the same family who are just in a completely different grief process. And if one of them is feeling like the other isn't acknowledging how they're going about it, there can be a lot of conflict and it will often play out in the money stuff and the the wills and the objects and um, a lot of control manipulation. And really underneath that is just pain. If you could really just sit down and, and, and grieve together or recognize each other's grief, it would be, it would be easier, softer. That's so true. Well, tell our listeners then the names of your books again, and then where they can find out more about you. And I, I say that too, because you also work with people online, correct? I do. I have an online course I created that anyone can sign up for and take, and it's based on all the work I've done. I have podcasts. Uh, I have online free meditations. Um, mm-hmm. Everything's on my website, clairebidwellsmith.com. Um, I do consultations with people around the globe by Skype and phone. And my three books are all available on Amazon under my name, um, The Rules of Inheritance and After This. And the newest one is called Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. Mm, That's a whole other show. (laughs) (laughs) It is. 
<laughs> yeah, that anxiety will hit you out of nowhere sometimes and you're like, what is this about? And then to connect the dots that it's to the grief that may even happened a few years ago is a mm -hmm. is an interesting journey. Yeah, it really is. Well, Claire, thank you so much for coming on the show. I absolutely appreciate it. And um, it's auspicious timing, but I'm going to look at it like it, it's all a for a good thing. <laughs> it is. It will be transformational. Absolutely. Thank absolutely. you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio. Hi, this is Dr. Paul Meyer, founder of the National Chain of Meyer Clinics. I've often told you about how people just like you are getting the healing that they need from emotional issues like depression, anxiety, anger problems, and relational problems. We wanted to share with you Mickey's experience at our day program and how it has affected his life. The Meyer Clinics has been a real blessing to me. Dr. Meyer told me that people get well here and my life has been completely changed. I have been symptom free for three years and I'd recommend it to anybody that really wants to overcome an emotional problem of any kind. Mickey's story is like so many others that we receive. It's an encouragement to us and we hope it will also be an encouragement to you to call us to get the emotional help that you've needed. Please call toll-free 888-7-CLINIC to be connected to the Meyer Clinic program nearest you. That's 1-888-7-CLINIC or go to MeyerClinics.com. That's www.meierclinics.com. Without good intentions, I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.